Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. To the last I grapple with thee, from hell's heart I stab at thee, for hate's sake I spit my last breath at thee. These are the last words spoken by Ahab, Herman Melville's obsessed whaling captain who spent years hunting the white whale that took his leg. Moby Dick is a cautionary tale about the price of fanaticism, how it can cloud our judgment. But even though the book was already 30 years old by the time some Scottish whalers found their own Moby Dick, they didn't seem to let it stop them from pursuing the animal for fame and fortune. Whalers from Dundee, a major whaling port on the eastern coast of Scotland, often hunted in the Arctic. However, the winter months had brought in cold that prevented them from sailing to their usual waters up north, so instead, they decided to hunt closer to home. Their local newspaper had been reporting for weeks on a whale sighted in the area, first in the river, then in a narrow inlet known as the Firth of Tay. Not long into their first trip, they spotted the humpback whale, just the kind of animal that would net them a small fortune once harvested for its blubber and bones. They hurled harpoons at it, hoping to injure it enough so they could tow it to shore, but the whale had other plans. It towed two rowboats and two steamboats instead for miles down the Scottish coast. The whalers worked until morning trying to reel in the massive humpback, but it eventually snapped the ropes on the harpoons and swam away. Unbeknownst to the men on the boats, however, the whale had taken on too much damage. One week later, some fishermen found it floating just off the coast of Stonehaven, toward the north of Scotland. They brought it ashore, where a local anatomy professor named John Struthers took its measurements. The whale that had led the men of Dundee on an all-night chase was 40 feet long, with 11.5-foot-long flukes. This was one of the largest whales ever captured on record, a windfall, to say the least, but not in the way that they had expected. Rather than strip it of its skin and bones as with other whales, a local oil merchant named John Wood paid to have the whale brought to his yard. It took 26 hours and 20 horses to cart it to Wood's property. From there, he charged visitors a small price to gaze upon the whale like a kind of sideshow curiosity. Over 12,000 people paid to see it on the first day. Of course, even though the winter cold may have slowed the whale's decay, it didn't completely stop it. Three weeks later, the rotting carcass was stinking up the neighborhood and Dr. Struthers returned to dissect what was left. Wood charged spectators to watch Struthers remove the whale's skeleton, and when the dissection was done, the whale's flesh was embalmed. Not one to give up on his cash cow, or cash whale in this instance, Wood had the whole animal reassembled over a wooden frame so that it could be toured all over Britain. The Tay whale traveled through Ireland, Liverpool, London, and finally rested back home in Dundee. For decades, the whale remained on display for the folks of Dundee, as well as visiting tourists, to see the creature that had taken a group of sailors on an all-night hunt. Today, the whale's skeleton is still on display in Dundee's McManus Museum, although its skin has long since fallen away. It hangs from the ceiling, far from the waters it once swam, as a reminder of our brutal past, and that it doesn't take a lost leg to drive one man's obsession. Sometimes all he's after is a quick buck.
From 1913 to 1940, a popular comic strip by Arthur Momond, also known as Pop, showed the unsuccessful exploits of a family struggling to measure up to their wealthy neighbors. The strip, titled Keeping Up with the Joneses, inspired that popular saying still used to this day to describe the endless pursuit of a higher social status as compared to others. Although the saying became popular while the strip was in circulation, the name Jones was used as a comparative benchmark long before that, going all the way back to the 1850s. In fact, a man named Whitaker Wright spent much of his life keeping up with the Joneses around that time when he was living in both the U.S. and England. While living in Philadelphia in the 1880s, Wright made his money as a promoter of silver mining companies in Colorado and New Mexico. His goal was to get investors to fund expeditions into the mines, presumably to harvest the supposed silver inside. The shareholders for these companies didn't make any money, but Wright certainly took home a sizable paycheck. With a small fortune to his name, he eventually moved back to England where he started the London and Globe Company. This was another venture into mining, except this time it dealt with stocks and bonds pertaining to the mines, rather than straight investments. By the 1890s, Wright had accumulated enormous wealth for himself and his family, and he felt it only proper to use that wealth to elevate his status within the upper crust of English society. The first thing he bought was a yacht, which was one of the fastest ever built at the time. Next, he purchased two estates in Surrey, one named Lee Park and one named South Park Farm. They were enormous properties, and he developed them into one massive estate, known today as Whitley Park. Whitley Park would become famous for its 32-room mansion, complete with its own observatory, personal theater, and a 50-horse set of stables. There were also three man-made lakes, which got right into hot water with locals who didn't appreciate the 9,000 acres of farmland that he drowned when making them. Aside from the lakes, observatory, and theater, Whitley Park also boasted its own racetrack known as the Velodrome, as well as a hospital meant just for Mr. Wright and his loved ones. But the most unique room in the house, and the one he was most proud of, was the smoking room. The smoking room's domed ceiling was made almost entirely of glass. Outside, Wright had an aquarium constructed where guests could pass the time by puffing on cigars while watching fish swim by. Visitors would access the room by descending stairs that led down and out of the main house and into the lake. That's right, the lake. The roof aquarium outside of Wright's smoking room was actually one of the lakes, and the fish swimming by lived inside it. The whole structure was built underwater. Anyone looking out at the lake from the shore would only see a statue of Neptune seemingly rising out of the water. It was attached to the top of the dome, and if there were people smoking down below, smoke would often waft out from the statue's mouth, which acted as a kind of ventilation shaft. Wright's estate and his unique eye for underwater architecture made him very popular among Victorian elites. However, his shady business practices would soon catch up with him. In 1904, he was convicted of fraud for funneling money from one of his companies to another that had been on the verge of bankruptcy. Investors had been duped out of their returns, and Wright couldn't bear the thought of spending seven years in prison. He passed away just after the trial ended, and his estate was quickly sold off. A man named Lord Peary bought it all, which seemed kind of fitting. You see, Lord Peary knew all about oceanic architecture. In fact, he would go on to play a huge role in building another large structure— that would eventually end up living beneath the waves. That structure? The Titanic. 
I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious. Thank you.